Hello and welcome to this ILCOS webinar series presentation titled Running Injuries in Athletics, How to Prevent and Manage. Presented by the ILCOS Sports Medicine Committee in collaboration with ESCA ESMA. Greetings, my name is Sergio Piedade of Brazil, Chairman of ILCOS Sports Medicine Committee. And along with webinar co-chair Gianluigi Canata of Italy, Chairman of ESCA ESMA, the European Sports Medicine Associated section of ESCA, we will be your moderators for today's webinar. Now, I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Canate to introduce our webinar panelists. Thank you, Sergio. Uh, uh, thank, uh, oh, thanks also to the audience. Uh, thank you to be here. And uh, I would like to introduce you to our distinguished Isaacos and ESCA webinar panelists. Uh, Renato Canova is our international running coach. And uh, the others are orthopedic surgeons. Michael Carmont from Temford in Great Britain. Peter Dag from Doha in Qatar. Pascal Edouard from Saint-Étienne, France. Elvire Servian from Lyon, France. Thank you again for joining us. And uh, let's get started with uh, Dr. Edward. We, uh, he will present on biomechanical issues. Good webinar to all of you. Dear colleagues, it is a very great pleasure to be here to deal about how to prevent and manage running injuries in athletics. I would like to thank the organizers for invitation to talk about biomechanical issues. I'm Pascal Edouard, professor in physiology and sports medicine at the University Hospital of Saint-Étienne in France. In athletics, about three quarters of athletes experience an injury during a season, and the majority are during running disciplines. With this uh, main diagnosis is especially hamstring muscle injuries. Focused on injury occurring during international athletic championships for which we have important and representative database. About 90% occur during running disciplines and about half of them are lower limb muscle injuries. Analyzing specifically these lower limb muscle injuries, we reported here the number of uh, injury according to the disciplines and reported according to the rocket uh, running velocity. So presenting from sprints to marathons. So there is a decrease in, in this uh, running speed from the left to the right of this graph. You can see important number of injury in sprints uh, and lower for long distances with majority hamstring uh, injury. In this figure, this is the percentage of injury according to the discipline. So you can see an important percentage of hamstring muscle injury for short distance and high velocity disciplines and higher percentage of posterior lower leg, leg muscle injuries for long distances and lower speed running. So there seems to be a shift with increase of muscle, hamstring muscle injuries with increase of speed and increase in posterior lower leg, leg muscle injuries with decrease of rocket speed. So this presentation will more focus on sprint training disciplines and hamstring muscle injuries. 
looking specifically at the running biomechanics. This experimental study in laboratory setting explores the contribution of uh, lower muscle for the running uh, speed and uh, its population with different way of analyzing EMG um, uh, biomechanical 3D model they reported that the contribution of ankle muscles were higher for lower velocities and uh, contribution of hip muscle was higher for higher velocities. So there was a shift in the muscle contribution with increase of speed from ankle to hip. So running injury risk reduction should be specific to the required running velocity. Looking specifically at sprint running mechanics and hamstring exercise, and specifically uh, about EMG activity. These two studies reported the EMG activity of hamstring during sprint, and this is a reference at 100%, and different exercises reported to be used during rehabilitation and prevention. And none of these exercises um, activate hamstring as high as sprint. So sprinting was the only exercise able to activate hamstring muscle as high as sprinting. And as so, sprinting could be considered as part of the solution for hamstring injury uh, risk reduction. Looking at sprint running biomechanics, the sprint acceleration performance determinants is the horizontal force production, the ability to produce high amount of, of horizontal force. Uh, in the forward direction. So, and uh, the muscle determinant of this horizontal force production are mainly hamstrings. We just analyze the potential association uh, between this horizontal force production and the occurrence of hamstring injury during a one season prospective coach study in uh, football players. Uh, they had several horizontal force production analysis over the season with the uh, hamstring injury data collection. And we reported a significant accession between the horizontal force production and the hamstring injury occurrence, uh, hamstring injury, which occurred just after the evaluation. So this study reported the association between a low horizontal force production and a higher risk of hamstring injury within the few uh, days or weeks after the test. Regarding sprint running kinematics, this case controlled studies in football players reported that players with previous hamstring injury have an entire tilt of the pelvic compared to control football players without hamstring injuries. Um, we can thus uh, estimate that uh, the entire tilt position could be a risk factor of risk factor of hamstring injury and so kinematics, sprint kinematics could be a risk factor of hamstring injuries. In this randomized control trial, athletes in the intervention group perform a specific program which change significantly the tilt position. So it is possible to change the uh, tilt position with the program. Regarding the rehabilitation of hamstring injuries, this randomized controlled trial in semi-professional football players reported that uh, the players who have a global multifactorial and criteria-based uh, progression uh, for the rehabilitation had a lower risk of recurrence of hamstring injuries with uh, 
the same delay for return to sports uh, with an increase in sprint mechanics parameters. So rehabilitation and probably also uh, injury prevention should be multifactorial with creature-based progression targeting running velocity. In general, for injury, injury reduction and management, uh, it is important to think at the context, uh, be global, multifactorial, and target the individual athletes to be specific to athletes' individual deficiencies. Take a message of this presentation. The function creates the organ. So uh, rehabilitation, management, prevention should target the organ. And as such, should be sport-specific, plurifactorial, repair and rehabilitate, increase the capacity of the tissue, not pain, train appropriately. Thank you very much for your attention. Running is one of the most natural activities for every being on the planet, including the human species. In athletics, it's possible to find a wider range of distances athletes can run, and that's are officially codified in order to create the official list of world records and best performances. The official running events start with the 60 meters in the indoor activity, the shortest distance of the sprint, and finish with the ultra running distances with the official record of 100 kilometers. Longer is the distance, slower is the speed. The specific talent of an athlete depends on several factors. The main are morphology, height, weight, anthropometric typology, longitypes, normotypes, or bracket types, type of muscle fibers, length of Achilles tendons, ability of the nervous system, activity of the circulatory system. Athletes with a high percentage of faster fibers have more talent for running short and can be talented for the physiological basis for every kind of resistance depends on the density of mitochondria, which are located in the slow fibers. Under biomechanical point of view, more the speed slows down more the ground contact time is longer. Endurance runners or amateur and medium level can have ground contact times between 200 and 300 milliseconds. Everybody can improve his speed working for developing the right technique. Of course, the genetic makeup is the major factor if an athlete wants to compete at an elite level. However, even the most gifted athletes need to learn the correct technique. Sprinting faster is about applying the maximum amount of force down to the ground. The more force you can apply to ground, the faster you will go. The fastest sprinters of the planet produce five times more vertical force into the ground compared to slower ones. To sprint fast, you need to have the foot land directly underneath the center of mass. Think of stepping over the knee and driving the foot straight down into the track. Longer strides should be the result 
of applying more force to the ground, which will automatically propel you forward. Instead, when we look at the running technique for long distances, we can see how there is a reduction of the range of motion with feet that don't arrive near the buttocks during the relaxation phase. Aim for midfoot or ball of the foot contact with the ground. An athlete who runs on the front half of the foot goes faster. Landing on the heels and rolling from back to front is a slower process and less efficient. Instead, runners want to feel a little bouncy and frisky. For promoting running on the toes, athletes can use a heel running that forces them to use their feet in the right way. Athletes who run on their toes are pushers, lightly pushing themselves away and forward from the surface. Runners who are less bouncy and make a contact farther back are pullers. Pullers can have some advantage while running on mud, for example, in cross-country races, because this type of action limits the possibility to slide. Some excellent runners are shufflers who fit into this category, and sometimes biomechanics dictate one style over the other. But in general, the pusher is faster than the puller. Depending on what athletes do in training and the specific demands of their event, we can see different kinds of injuries. With the sprinters who train at very high intensity and need to use a maximal level, the characteristic of the faster fibers, one of the main problems when tired is the progressive loss of ability to relax when the lactate level increases. Many lesions happen because the antagonist muscles are no more able to relax in the same time of the action of the agonist muscles. This is, for example, the typical lesion of hamstrings. With long distance runner, instead, the main injuries depend on the overuse of muscles tendons, bones, and ligaments during training or during competition. Typical injuries for endurance runners are stress fractures that occur more commonly in lower extremities than in upper extremities. Stress fractures should be considered in patients who present with tenderness or edema after a recent increase in activity or repeated activity with a limited rest. Stress fractures are common injuries that begin with repetitive and excessive stress on the bone, when there is insufficient time for the bone itself to repair the damage produced by the local stress. In this case, we can frequently see some stress reaction of the bone that evolves in stress fracture if the runner doesn't stop his activity on time. The most common location for stress fractures are tibia, 23.6%, tarsal navicular, 17.6%, metatarsal, 16.2%, fibula, 15.5%, femur, 
6.6%, pelvis 1.6%, and spine 0.6%. Statistically, women are at a higher risk of stress fracture than men. The risk of the stress fractures and the tendinopathies is higher for runners who have some morphological imperfection. This imperfection when running, high volume of mileage can easily provoke a trauma from overload. For example, running with excessive pronation or limping because the length of the legs is not exactly the same or to use one leg more than the other because the center of gravity is on one side due to scoliosis, etc. In all these problems, the shoes of modern generation have an important role, not always positive. In conclusion, there are many factors to consider about every kind of injury occurring for runners. At a little level, the collaboration between coach, doctors, and physios is at the base of top performance. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Peter Dover, and thanks for the chance to join you and the eminent lineup to talk about the short distance running injuries in athletics. I have no disclosure to the content of this talk. And when we talk about sprints, we talk about athletics, for example, and of course, many conditions can occur. Um, this is a footage on video of the triple jump Olympic gold medal champion and world record holder uh, before Tokyo, I have to mention. And this is what happened. After his third um, tryout, uh, he ruptured and exploded his Achilles tendon. So what we do as orthopods is that we fix it and then we work with our rehab team to bring them back. After three months, they can already do a lot. After five months, uh, they are ready to the reconditioning phase and gradual progress to the, towards their um, world-class uh, performances. But we need to understand what's going on because although these are great results after a uh, terrible incident, it's still half a year that the athlete uh, loses. So we cannot be very proud of that. But what we can do is try to understand better what's happening in sprints at the foot and ankle level. And that's why I have the chance to uh, collaborate with Dr. Philip Graham Smith and his team and to look into the biomechanical analysis of sprints with special interest on starts, accelerations, and maximum speed. So I wanted to take the opportunity, not just to talk about treatment and injuries, but especially to understand what's going on because treatment is gold, but prevention is diamond. And if we don't understand what's going on, we will never be able to bring them back earlier and safer as we are doing now. Taken at 55 meters down the IAA track and a Grand Prix in the UK. And this world-class field of sprinters will be achieving maximum velocities of around 12 meters per second. So let's take a closer look at their technique now. Now, whilst the characteristics of maximum speed running are very interesting, we cannot dismiss the fact that in order to get to speeds in excess of 12 meters per second, the athlete has to accelerate for 60 meters approximately. And these were videos of Asafa Powell, a world record holder in 100 meter sprint, and we'll take a look at the acceleration phase and at the maximum speed running furthermore. So this graph shows the instantaneous velocity profile of Asafa in three training runs of between 60 to 90 meters collected with a laser gun. His maximum speed was over 11 meters per second and he achieved that around 50 to 60 meters. The zero position is the start line 
and his lower back crosses the start line as he's pushed out of the blocks, he's already recording speeds of 3.5 plus meters per second. A toe off from his first foot contact, which is one to two meter down the track, he has reached a speed of six meters per second, which is his maximum velocity 50% within the first two steps. And within the first five to six meter or five steps, he reaches 70% plus of his maximum speed. And that is the power and acceleration ability of world-class sprinters. So we can also see below that the recovery foot is already primed to make the next contact, meaning the flight times are small, but what a power is, uh, is reached through these meters. Now, here we have a slow motion footage from a rear view, 500 frames per second of two world-class sprinters in training. The characteristics of the block start are high level of, pro of force production, which in elite athletes and sprinters, the block time is around 307 milliseconds. Now take a closer look at the two athletes mentioned on the image. The athlete on the left plants his foot quite straight and narrow. Contrast that with the athlete on the right, who has a wider foot placement and is externally rotated, directing more laterally, very much like a speed skater who needs to find more friction against the ice. However, whilst this style of, is a preference of the athlete on the right, what is common is that both make contact on the forefoot. They have a very stiff ankle joint and the heel doesn't touch the floor and therefore they demonstrate full knee extension at toe off. Now at Aspire Academy and Aspitar in our IAAF accredited indoor track, we have 12 force platforms in lane eight. This is our laboratory. Six of these are in the start and, it's, and at the further six around 48 to 55 meters. Now in the start, here I will take the video. We capture forces independently from both legs and both arms and the first two contact. So this is good for analysis, but also for talent detection and also for reconditioning after injury and treatment. Now, during a number of training camps attended by groups of world-class sprinters, our team has done some analysis on the start. And this is a typical output from the force platforms showing vertical and anterior forces, uh, also posterior forces, in the blocks and in first and second foot contacts. The beauty of force platform systems is that we can build up a velocity profile and give feedback immediately to the athlete and coaches, all within one second from the onset of movement. As the athlete's foot makes contact below at the inclined body, the majority of force is propulsive, so positive while with other minor amounts of negative breaking force upon contact exist. It's a bit of a heavy slide. Moving onto the maximum speed running, uh, we see that the kinetics and kinematics of maximum speed running are specific. Look at these videos. Here we have a high speed video of athletes running over an array of portable force platforms positioned at 55 meters from the start. Now, this is a typical vertical, which is green, and horizontal braking propulsive, which is red, ground reaction force graph of one athlete sprinting in excess of 10 meters per second. At maximum velocity, the differentiator between ability levels is the amount of vertical force production within a very short contact time. This is done by avoiding energy leakage through excessive flexion in the knee 
and finding the good balance between being stiff and utilizing elastic energy. Now, just to take a closer look at the maximum speed sprinting technique, the ankle and foot move down and backwards relative to the center of mass prior to contact. And this helps to apply vertical force and reduce braking forces. During the contact phase, the athlete makes contact on the balls of the foot and the ankle is underneath the chest, planting the foot in front of the body that creates greater braking forces. The trunk is inclined towards with the hip flexed to facilitate the foot contact below the chest. And note that the ankle should not be plantar flexed, but the ankle is in either a neutral or dorsiflexed position. And this means that it can react better to the vertical impact forces generating tension in the Achilles tendon immediately while reducing energy leakage and time on the ground compared to a plantar flexed ankle. The heel may not touch the ground. The knee is partially flexed and the shin almost vertical at contact with knee angles that remain stiff during contact. It doesn't flex much and it does not fully extend at toe off. In the flight phase, the recovery of the leg is initiated with the knee flexion and driving the knee forwards. The ankle is brought up and over the opposite knee in preparations for the next contact. And when the foot makes contact, the thigh should be parallel to each other. So these are all analysis that only work on one thing. That means that when we understand better the biomechanical analysis as orthopods on these injuries, we can only improve in our techniques as well. And especially by understanding working better towards our uh, technicians on the field that can uh, help us in that reconditioning phase. Uh, gold medals have to do with treatment, with prevention, with talent detection. And uh, I would say, enjoy the Tokyo furthermore. We enjoyed it so far very much. And uh, I look forward to hear more about the other distances and the colleagues in the webinar. My talk is on running injuries in long distances. Long distances uh, are uh, uh, running races between 30,000 and 30,000 meters. Injuries are common considering that we have more than 600 million runners in the world and the incidence rates is between 18 up to 90% of cases. This variability is due to the heterogeneity of studies. The incidence in competitions is lower. As you see, 11% in long distance running events, mostly acute injuries, while in marathon races, they are mostly overuse injuries. And women are something, in some cases, more at risk. These are the top 10 specific pathologies. As you see, patellofemoral pain syndrome, Achilles tendinopathies, medial tibial stress syndrome, plantar fasciitis, iliotibial band syndrome, calf strain, meniscus injuries, stress fractures, patellar tendinopathies, and gluteal injuries. And then he is the most common location. These are examples of common injuries. Patellofemoral pain syndrome, that is patellar maltracking due to uh, um, running, squatting, going up and down stairs and in dynamic valgus conditions. 
Risk factors are female sex, foot abnormalities, overuse or sudden increase in physical activity level, patellar instability, and decreased quadriceps strength. Treatment is a six weeks of daily exercises focused on flexibility and leg and core strengthening. Achilles tendinopathy is another common injury, mostly in the mid portion, but also at the insertional or pre-insertional site. And the best treatment are eccentric heel lowering exercises. Then we have the medial tibial stress syndrome, shin splints, due to repetitive contraction of the posterior muscles, creating stress at the periosteal insertion. Treatment is conservative, relative rest and calf stretching. While when we have stress fractures, time to resume sport is much longer, up to 10 months. And this is due mostly to menstrual disturbances in women, low bone mineral density, and the tibia is the most common site due to uh, inadequate capacity of bone remodeling for repetitive and constant stresses. And uh, the treatment uh, uh, is uh, effective if you stop running for six, eight weeks and uh, with, with bearing unless walking is painful. These are examples of the tibial stress fractures, sesamoid fractures, metatarsal fractures, and navicular fractures. Time loss in competition, fortunately, in most cases, is not so long, you see. No time loss in up to 49% of cases, and up to seven days in 25-30% of cases, higher in females. These are risk factors running experience, lack of experience, training errors, wrong surfaces, wrong distances, uh, race participations when not ready, and uh, not uh, good shoes. Then we have also another other risk factors, increased physical demands, virus knees, male gender, greater height in male runners, history of the previous injuries, a high BMI, and worn shoes. But curiously, you can see here that you can also run without shoes. Some authors question the term overuse injury and proposed training load error as a more accurate term. Management. An early diagnosis is extremely important. Then we should ease biological repair, protect the injury in the site, avoid painkillers, and re resume training progressively. Screening is an important prevention, and we should screen arthritis during the season and one month before competitions. Information on dietary and mental history in female athletes is important. Workload and adaptation should be optimized to prevent overuse. 
and we should increase training gradually. Training has a protective role, but if you undertrain, you may increase injury risk. And high training loads may predispose to injury, but they can protect against injury when coupled with small magnitude changes in training loads. And as the International Olympic Committee proposed, we should always check our athletes with a pre-participation examination, but also with periodic health evaluations to assess the athlete's health status and to check if there are risk of future injuries or diseases. Thank you. Hello, everybody. First of all, I'd like to thank Isaacus and Nesca for supporting our webinar, Running Injuries in Athletes, How to Prevent and Manage. My seven-minute topic is on marathon. One reason why running is such an engaging, inspiring activity is the marathon race, an endurance running race that defies athletes' body limits, but also offers moments of joy and celebration for this achievement. And more than that, it involves passion and history. These two marathon runners, Emil Zatopek and Abeli Bikila, make part of this history and the passion for marathon race. When training, athletes could experience the hitting the wall effect, which is the inefficiency of producing energy, muscle fatigue, but it could be worse if the athlete's fluid intake is not suitable, creating a perfect scenario to metabolic imbalance and increasing vulnerability to musculoskeletal and cardiovascular to injury. Well, the, the key point to overcome a marathon is to develop a high level of adaptability to manage the body energy, which is the aim of uh, endurance training, optimize the runner's performance. However, we must keep in mind that body response to physical overloading is not uniform to, for each athlete. Due to the, the high physiological demand in marathon, adverse clinical conditions can happen, such as dehydration, hyponatremia. It is estimated that only about 20% of endurance runners monitor their hydration Sudden cardiac arrest, a rare but unpredictable clinical event. Uh, we must remember the average age of marathon runners is around 45 years old. And the exertional heat stroke, when the core body temperature is over 40 degrees Celsius, causing organ dysfunctions and neurological changes. Below, we have some risk factors to it, heat load, low physical fitness, overweight, improper hydration regime, and so on. Regarding musculoskeletal injuries, they are caused by repetitive mechanical stress associated to a lower tissue remodeling capacity. Of course, um, lower limbs are more affected than upper limbs. 
Anterior knee pain is a common complaint of endurance runners, but different entities can also be related to it. However, the patellofemoral pain syndrome is the most common cause uh, resulted from muscle imbalance, weakness of a hip abductor mechanism, deficit of stretching, muscle fatigue, and of course, overtraining. Regarding ankle and foot, the most common event is acute tendinopathies. Uh, clinical diagnosis, well known as sport-related injury, and an overused type of injury that could be acute or chronic. It is happened when tissue remodeling capacity is exceeded by the repetitive uh, trauma. Clinically, it is manifested by pain, swelling, and impaired sports performance. The medial and posterior medial aspect of the distal lower leg is the local. Medial tibial stress syndrome, novice uh, runners are commonly affected, but it can also be can also touch it, recreational and professional runners. Uh, clinically, the, the patient, uh, the runners complain of uh, pain on the lower leg and lower leg discomfort outside to the medial side of lower leg. And again, it's closely related to greater physical demand. So uh, prevention measures and treatment should involve uh, pre-participation evaluation because uh, it is available to, to monitor the athlete's health, uh, their lifetime in sports. And also because it is the first step to screen and identify possible cardiovascular injury related to sudden death. And moreover, uh, rehabilitation program athlete training regime, uh, running biomechanics, equipment, medication use, and emotional status should be assessed. In my clinical practice, uh, I have identified that uh, some new runners start running non-stop, quickly increasing running training, which is uh, an, a real obsession for sports performance. However, a long time without respecting their body limits, the runner becomes more vulnerable to injuries and complaint of knee and shin pain, bad sleeping, insomnia, that will result in psychological distress because they don't live up their expectation. I, I call that as a forest runner's behavior syndrome. Remember what uh, David Bowie said, we can't be hero, but just for one day. This line summarizes the new runner's line of thinking, which involves passion, dream with new challenges, a nightmare that we will cure when body limits were not respected. So uh, I'd like to wrap up my presentation saying that our mind may play tricks but our body never lied to us. Showing to us in the form of pain or sensation what is working for us and what is not. Remember, listen to your body. Thank you for your attention.
Hello, my name is Mike Carmont, and I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to present today. I want to present some case reports on running injuries at this Weissacost webinar offered in collaboration with ESCA. I am a consultant trauma and orthopedic surgeon. I work at the Shrewsbury and Telford NHS Trust, which is just northwest of uh, Birmingham, and I'm also a uh, competitive runner. I compete in mountain marathons uh, when I'm not working hard for the various uh, journals that I work for. I occasionally teach an Arthrex courses also. I compete in mountain marathon racing, which is a combination of uh, fell running and orienteering, which is taken across a rough undulating mountainous terrain in the United Kingdom and uh, other countries. Here competitors would race for anything up to 80 kilometers over two days. There is an N4's campsite uh, overnight when um, uh, athletes generally rest and recover prior to the next day's racing. And this is all part of the fun. I've done this for, for, for many years since I was uh, 15, 16 years of age. Uh, the terrain uh, varies, and um, you can see there are some considerable climbs. This is another event in the Lake District. It's all smiles, so this is one of the photos as I'm coming into the finish. I've competed for a long time with my uh, friend, uh, John Smallwood. Unfortunately, he, he passed away uh, earlier on this year, and this is, if anything, it's a tribute uh, to him. A lot of the terrain is very rough indeed. You'll be frequently running through bracken or heather, and the fronts of the shins get suffered by lots of uh, small grazes and scratches, uh, which can be a nuisance at times. This is my shins at the front of the, um, on the front of the legs after uh, a race in Scotland through lots of gorse and uh, bracken. I've also suffered from general overuse injuries in my time, and this is why I've been asked to present today. I've been suffering from lots of patellar tendinopathy, which were significantly helped by my running inserts. <clears throat> um, uh, very common with most runners and that one in two runners will have an element of Achilles tendinopathy in their time and I was fortunate enough to sustain an injury just before the 2012 Olympic Games and here at the handball competition I had a team of physiotherapists who were very bored and they were keen to help me with acupuncture, icing and taping and very quickly the symptoms settled down uh, from that. I also suffered from um, hamstring injuries and this was a an injury I sustained, this was a, a rupture I sustained think about, uh, um, about eight years ago now. It wasn't as bad as Adam Jamilius, who suffered a, a hamstring tear at the recent Tokyo Games uh, in his final train run before going on to the track. And he taped it up and unfortunately wasn't able to compete to his full potential, but he still completed the course. And now for some of the cases. The, the first case is of a 41-year-old veteran nurse um, she's a competitive runner uh, and also a recreationally competitive rower uh, in that she trains to compete. Um, she was aware of a dull ache on the outer aspect of her foot, uh, followed by a sudden sharp pain. And she was quite tender to the fifth metatarsal base and was unable to, to wait there. Certainly there was a stress component to my eyes and there is also a fracture which extends into the intermetatarsal joint or into the metatarsal cuneiform joint. What are the treatment options here and what would you do? We could do non-operative treatment and she wants to return to running and competitive sports as fast as possible. We could excise the fragment. We could also fix the fragment by a variety of techniques such as 
intermedial risk through plate stabilization or tension band wire. I've used many of these techniques before. Um, I tend to use the tension band wire for avulsion techniques, and I tend to place an intramedial wrist screw uh, for the more di distal uh, diaphyseal injuries. So for her, we chose the tension band wire through a small drill hole in the lateral cortex of the fifth metatarsal. And here, tensile forces are converted into compressile forces. And Jan Sarimo and the group uh, under Professor Arava's uh, supervision uh, have written up a good number of case series and report a time to union in just over uh, three months. So the fracture did indeed heal after about three months. Um, and during the recovery time, we demonstrated non-weight bearing and we gave her alternate activities to do. But she still complained of pain in the outer side of her foot. And we thought the metalwork was rubbing on her shoes. And we had plans to remove the bulky metalwork. Unfortunately, COVID came along and gave us a delay. That the patient had ongoing pain. And if you look at the recurrent radiograph, you, the repeat radiograph, sorry, you may see there is the possible appearance of a black line uh, more distal to the original rupture, almost within the diaphyseal area of the, um, of the bone. The metalwork was removed and she reported less pain in the outer aspect of her foot, but still a nagging sensation. This is a repeat radiograph. Now, can I ask you, what are you going to do? What training recommendations are you going to uh, advise? Should we proceed to repeat stabilization of what could be a, a secondary injury within the same area with a long prognosis? I've held off organizing orthotics just until we've allowed the bones to settle down. And after discussion with the patient, she wants to continue with the recreational cycling, computer rowing if possible, but we've held off for running. She also has significant work commitments, so she wants to try and sort out uh, her work situation first. And with follow-up, we can see that gradually the bone is starting to fill in. Um, she's now returning completely to rowing, returned to cycling, and she wants to know when she can come back to, to running. And I'm just encouraging her to have more time and her life stabilizes. The second case is of a 40-year-old runner. Uh, he sustains a, an ankle fracture. And you can see here there's a high fibula fracture with also an avulsion of the medial malleolus, which are stabilized by uh, screws. Two three-quarter seal uh, screws have been put across the syndesmosis with washers. This is not by me. It's, um, I tend to prefer the, uh, a suture tightrope across the ankle. The question is, what do we do next? The, the fracture heals, and then what do we advise for our runner? Does the runner keep off running? they return to running? Do we allow the screws themselves to, to, to break or do we wait for them to do nothing and take out the metalwork? Well, if we're going to remove the screws, when do we do so? Now, this is a patient who had uh, a long wait to have the metalwork removed. And you can see here that the broken screw has broken almost within the medullary cavity of the fibula. And you can see that the actual uh, screw end on the medial side the internal side is creating a small aperture. Uh, now, uh, does this put the patient to increased risk of a further fibula fracture or a stress riser just distal to the plate, or uh, should we take it out? Well, there are patient returned to running. He's completed a half marathon and he's attended for follow-up. He still has a bit of an ache to the area, and we got a check radiograph which showed that there is increased uh, 
synostosis between the two bones. And he's quite happy with the way things go. And rather than take everything out and, um, uh, and also possibly remove the synostosis, he's quite happy uh, to see how things are. Our final case is of a 53-year-old uh, runner who works as an accountant. He complained of pain behind the posture malleolus, where the area is swollen and it's tender with some synovitis. The imaging uh, revealed degenerate uh, complex tears to the perineal structures, and we proceeded to perform open debridement. Uh, I tend to perform perineal tendoscopy, uh, first of all, before these. And uh, we can see here that there are multiple strands to the perineal tendons which were debrided um, and um, uh, also repaired. Um, this is uh, the, the same repair afterwards, and I was wondering what people's experiences are uh, for these repairs. I tend to bury these suture knots internally to avoid any actual catching, but they still seem to report some nagging and aching. Well, we're coming to an end of our presentation now. I'd like to thank you for the invitation. I want to thank you for listening, and um, let's hope we have a very good discussion. Thank you. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm very uh, pleased to share with you this topic uh, regarding running any arthritis. I would like to share this presentation with my co-author, Dr. Sapé Marie. We did, uh, we did mostly all the research um, regarding this, uh, this topic. I have no disclosure and we know running is the best exercise to improve cardiovascular system, musculoskeletal, respiratory, and generally all the else. That for sure, it's proven. But the main question when you see runner at your clinic, they will ask you, is running associated to an increased risk of arthritis, and especially uh, I see more and more people doing a trail, a ultra trail, so long running, but with a lot of uh, downhill and uh, uphill. So I'm going to try to answer to this question uh, with another look of the literature. We know for a neo-arthritis, there is some risk factor uh, which are mostly obesity and knee injury, previous ACL um, with uh, meniscus uh, lesion. What's about running? There is a very nice paper published long time ago, more than 30 years ago, comparing runners versus non-runners. It's a very nice study because it has been done on long for long distance runner doing more than 40 years of running. So this study has a very long uh, time follow-up. Those runner uh, was doing running between 40, 20 to 40 kilometers per week. And what they found comparing two groups, so one group of runners and one group non-runners, they didn't find any difference in osteoarthritic degeneration in both groups at long-term follow-up. Another very nice study, a German study published in German 15 years ago, they look for a high level runner and long runner. So they look for 20 uh, elite German marathon, 
who had active careers during the 70s, 80s, and again with a very long term follow up uh, between 20 to 34 years. And they found for those population in this study, osteoarthritis for the knee was very rare for this patient, and it was most maybe common for the hip. But now if we look at the meta-analysis, I will share with you two meta-analyses. This one from Carlson and Volker Musel. Uh, they look for many, many studies, including more than 100,000 patients. If you can see the flowchart here. And what they found is maybe different than the previous study I share, or I'll just share with you. They found a higher risk for hip or neostroarthritis for competitive runners. But they found a significantly lower odds for osteoarthritis for runners at recreational level. I will say the runners, as you can see in my country, the people who run every Sunday 10 kilometers. But which is important, it's associations for this work at recreational level for runner doing that for more than 15 years. So there is a relationship between the running and also to do it for a long time. They didn't, they didn't, there was not, sorry, they were not able to demonstrate any influence of associated risk for age, sex, weight, and previous injury. Another uh, meta-analysis performed in the US regarding different sports and the risk of osteoarthritis for those sports. And they found elite level long distance running was a sport with a higher risk, higher prevalence risk of osteoarthritis as a previous study. So, the another question when you see runner is okay, I have osteoarthritis now. I want still running. I try all the medical treatment, I still painful, but I want to keep going running or trail, long distance running. What can I do? Is a surgery a solution for those patients? Just quickly, we know. There is a study regarding osteotomy runs the knee and sport, return to sport. And we published a long time ago uh, this um, figure. And we can see, I'm sorry, it's here. It just, uh, you can see that because I have just my camera here. So here, that is runner. That means in two thirds of the case, patient with osteotomy will go back to run and Sometimes I have some patients doing marathons. So osteotomy can be also a solution to treat patients with osteoarthritis and patients who want to keep do, uh, to do running um, and some other sports. Of course, we can discuss to do uh, uni or uh, osteotomy. And I will just finish with this study comparing uh, strenuous activities and uh, for HTO and uni and for uh, jogging here. And what they found, they found similar outcome for patients considering jogging 
for uh, uni or uh, ITBL or Stockholm. So what is the takeoff message of this topic? Regarding the literature, intense intensive professional writer, runners may be at risk of neatritis regarding meta-analysis, but recreational running is associated with lower knee arthritis when it's performed for up to 15 years. Thank you for your attention. Okay. So that's it for our, the Q&A component of, of our webinar. Uh, so uh, that's all, oh, sorry, we will start our discussion. So uh, we received some, some questions from, from the participants. And one of the questions is related to the use of orthobiologic and for the treatment of stress fracture. What, what do you think about it as an, as an option of no surgical treatment? Michael, what? I am. Um... I think that uh, the use of orthobiologics is very innovative and I think it's certainly a good role for the treatment and management of stress fractures. How we go about and do it is a very different thing. Uh, that's something which needs to have a lot of research on. It's something which the use of um, animal and biological science is likely to show a good outcome. But it will be very, very difficult to show that orthobiologics actually make a difference in the clinical setting. So one has to think about what are the downsides for using those orthobiologics? If there aren't any downsides, why not try them? Okay. Peter? Yes, I completely agree with Michael. And also maybe we can add that it's all about alignment. Huh? You can put as much as uh, regenerative cells or whatever you want to call it in an environment that needs to heal. If you don't respect alignment, uh, and it was mentioned that you have to uh, make tensile forces, compressive forces in order to gain the stability that you require. So it's not just about putting cells into an environment where healing should be uh, optimized. It's all about alignment and understanding the biology and the morphology of the problem. So there's much more to it than just an injection, but it is one of the uh, option tools in the menu that in athletic uh, population is, uh, is, is in a frequently uh, manner discussed in the consultations for sure. And as Michael said, if there's no real downsides, it can be in a sole treatment or in combination or in an augmentation of other treatments. I quite agree with that, but I should add, we really miss evidence-based medicine regarding this uh, uh, old tech new technology and level one study. Of course, we know it's very difficult to do level one study in high-level athletes, but anyway, uh, we, we miss uh, a scientific evidence regarding all this uh, uh, treatment. And Pascal? Thank you. I, I, I agree with my colleagues and I, I have no additional opinion. 
Okay. And John? Yes, I agree totally because uh, the first point is to uh, check the causes, the causative factors, correct them. This is the important point. Okay. As you have uh, many uh, foot and ankle surgeons, uh, there is another question here related to um, the prevention for Achilles tendinopathy is uh, uh, ultrasound Achilles scan in the precision. Do, do you think it's a good strategy for that, for prevention? Okay. Well, I, I, I could answer. Uh, uh, usually, uh, uh, we uh, have athletes with symptoms before the, the uh, injury come, comes out uh, uh, clearly. Uh, uh, in other in other cases, uh, we have a sudden uh, uh, explosion of, uh, of the pathology. Uh, yes, we could uh, use a US uh, ultrasound evaluation, but uh, I don't know if this is so, uh, so reliable because you, you can have sometimes a, a, a normal appearance and if, a few weeks later you have problems. Uh, so there are uh, several factors to consider. Michael, you have comment for that? Yeah, I was just thinking. I um I have uh, seen a paper uh, regarding that recently, and um, it was quite good. But um, I don't think it completely knocked the area on the head. And if you're doing ultrasound scanning as your diagnosis of it, it does, as Gianluigi alluded to, make you wonder what is your diagnosis um, and what features are you going to use uh, to say and to say whether someone's at risk of developing further tendinopathy. It might be more appropriate to consider uh, patients who have previously had Achilles tendinopathy and do uh, a preventative eccentric loading program to try and ensure the tendons are appropriately loaded to try and keep it away. Um, Peter? Yes, uh, I personally uh, really believe in that. I think it's not only for Achilles tendinopathies, it's also for patellar tendinopathies. Very useful to look at the revascularization phase where you are in the tendinopathy and, uh, and counteract your strategies within physio and podiatry towards that. So a full-blown yes to the use of that, of course, in, in the hands of somebody who uses that within his, his or her sports medical practice. Okay. We have more questions? No prevention? And um, there, there is a question for uh, Dr. Bruno. I think uh, Peter, you, we we discussed this question. Uh, how uh, the, the frequency of uh, do you recommend a strength training for lower uh, lower extremities in marathoners, centric or heavy load? Uh, 
Well, I'm happy to comment, but the marathon was uh, not my topic, so maybe I can refer to my colleagues on that, but happy to comment after. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, I think that a global physical preparation is important. And so this, this should be on a daily basis, but on a, a whole physical view, not just specific, because as we have seen in marathon runners, we have mostly overuse injuries. And uh, these uh, aspects are more important for sprint injuries. Um, Peter, we, we have, if you want to, to comment. Yes, well, I, uh, I agree uh, totally with Gian Luigi. Um, also, we, we are really abusing the word eccentric. Whenever we talk about tendons, everybody starts with the word eccentric. Now, uh, as you know, there's a lot in, in chronic injuries, insertional tendinopathies over the Achilles tendon, uh, even plantar fasciitis, uh, aponeurosis tendinopathies, and so on. Now, if you do eccentric loading stretch on that, you make it worse. So I think you have to really be very cautious on the nomenclature that we use and to make sure that we do the right things for the right reasons. And therefore, uh, it is our duty to talk the same language, to differentiate what type of tendinopathy it is, which location, which comorbidities are there, and, and do a proper job. So, uh, so that's just uh, my personal opinion. Okay. And Michael? Michael? Like I, I, I work in a uh, district general hospital setting, and I would love to have Peter's resources. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the skills I employ are based on history and physical examination. And uh, for example, the current waiting list for a, an ultrasound scan is in excess of two months. So based upon clinical exam, I would recommend uh, for discriminatory physiotherapy. Um, and I look after the general health of a lot of recreational runners. So. One thing I do know is that with mid-substance tendinopathy, all the patients who see me and they see the passion for eccentric exercises when I demonstrate to them on the stairs, they get better. The patients who are heavier and may have a more generalized form of heel pain, they do not. Okay. So um, I think I have a final question related to the um... Uh, in your clinical practice, uh, when treating runners who present recurrent injuries in a short period of time and uh, declining their sports performance, how important is to evaluate the athlete's emotional status? Uh, well, what do you think? Because all the time we, we are discussing biomechanics, but I think this is a point we, we must uh, keep in mind. What, what do you think? You could start, Michael. Uh, well, um, yeah, I, um, I have talked a lot about this today, and there is a fantastic paper which has recently been published, and I praise the authors, and I, it, it's about mental health and depression with Achilles tendon injuries, and the three-month time point is the key, I see. I've seen a lot of people who are very, very down and very, very depressed, 
and we've given them good management, be it non-operative or operative, and they're wondering why at three months they still cannot do a heel rise um, after an Achilles tendon injury. And you reassure them and you explain and it will take time. And uh, a few of them feel they're going crazy. And the mental health and a positive outlook for these patients is the key. And to remind them, and I, I get functional and patient reported scores, so I can tell them, you are level with your peers. Do not fear these things. You will get back to sports activity. And that reassurance and a positive outlook is vital for my patients. Uh, your view? Would you like to comment? It's difficult. I cannot answer. I'm a surgeon. So uh, for sure, mental, mental health is very important. It is important for every uh, health issue, not only in sport, for Every time you will operate a patient, we know there is any issue with the mental S, there will be a, a big trouble. So I think it's, uh, yes, it's a big issue, but for every, every pathology. Okay. Uh, Pascal? Yes, I totally agree. So uh, injury is multifactorial. There is not only the biomechanical part, biomechanical part but there is other aspect, metabolical, uh, physical, but also psychological and, of course, uh, societal. So there is a context in which the athlete is living. So is, we, as physicians, we often go to the body and look at the body, and there is all the other parts, and we have to, to take care of all of that. Uh, since it's multifactorial, this is not always the same part of each part. Um, so sometimes this is more a physical problem, sometimes this is more psychological problem, sometimes it's more the context. So it is important to have this global analysis of uh, the patient uh, as an overall. And Jan? Uh, well, I agree. I agree totally with, uh, with, with Pascal, yes. And Peter? Yes, look, imagine you break your finger as a surgeon and you're out for four to six weeks. You go crazy. Can you imagine if you're on the and highest states of elite uh, athletic performance? And that's what we saw in Tokyo. So it's a, it's a hot topic and it should have been dealt with already. And, and the groups uh, within, within Amsterdam and other friends they have notified that in the past already, uh, also in other sports. So the, the idea is that there's much more to it than just the, the physical behavior. And if you look at the loss of competition, it's one thing. But as Pascal said, uh, many of these athletes, they are isolated once they go uh, in injury. Uh, they, they don't have the supportive structure of, of a solid family environment sometimes. Sometimes the whole village uh, where they were, there was a talent detection relies on their capability of performing. Um, so it's not just the competitive stress, it's the, the social stress. And, and if there's one thing we have to acknowledge is that that becomes more and more a topic that we need to take into consideration. Although within surgery, we also can achieve uh, providing other options. Uh, I, I tend to do a lot of Achilles tenoscopies. And I learned that in a, by my mentor, Nick Van Dijk with great results that also give a potential uh, 
solution to, to further degradation and frustration when conservative treatment doesn't work. So we have alternatives to offer, but it's a complex structure, of course, and it's much more than what is discussed within the consultation room. I agree with all of you. Uh, I think this uh, Olympic Games have reinforced the importance of our careful attention uh, to at least psychological distress. Uh, and uh, of course, we know that the, the, they are uh, constantly working their body limits. Uh, however, I think we must keep in mind that uh, nowadays, uh, the athletes should overcome uh, not just uh, the pressure in training or the, the, the results in competition, but uh, also the huge impact that technology has through exposure or social media and, and so on. Uh, um, especially in these uh, Olympic Games, we had uh, war references in sports uh, giving up their uh, competition. So I think it's a, it's a very important topic. So um, I think we, have, we don't have more questions. So I think that that is it for our Q&A component of this webinar. Uh, with much gratitude, we thank our panelists for this webinar and of course Dr. Kanata and thank you to all of those who attended today's webinar and uh, uh, let me remind you if you are not already a member of Isaacus we invite you to join us as well as uh, to join the upcoming Isaacus 2021 Global Congress. I wish to all of you uh, a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you all of you.